about six months ago in the month of December, when the weather was really cold, we opened to the first verse of the book of Luke, and we said we're going through it, straight through it, verse by verse. And so we're about at chapter nine, but if you've been along with us through that journey, what you have discovered is that Luke is writing to answer a very specific question that his friend Theo is asking, and Jesus is asking of his disciples. We're going to see that question here this morning in Luke chapter 9, but before we get there, I want you to go all the way back to chapter 2, and we're going to briefly survey what we've learned so far. Does anybody know in popular culture what an Easter egg is? Now, if you're thinking of like a, a hard-boiled egg that you paint and hide for children to find, that's not what I'm talking about. Do you know what an Easter egg is in a movie or a, a series or something like that? It's something that the, the screenwriter or the author will drop along the way as just little hints, little clues to kind of connect the dots so that when the whole picture envelops, you'll be able to go back and it's like, oh, I remember this that connected to that and this other movie over here and that one that was 25 years ago. And what we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke is Luke has dropped Easter eggs for us all along the way so that when we see the culmination this morning, we'll go back and say, oh yeah, oh yeah, I see what he was doing there. Now, do you want to see it? It's all wrapped up in the little word, who. That's the Easter egg that he drops all along the book. So go back to chapter two, and the question that Jesus has asked is this. Most important question in human history, who do you say I am? And how you answer that question determines everything about you. So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And yet Luke has been dropping Easter eggs all along the way to answer the question. Luke chapter two, look at what the angel said in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, who is Christ the Lord? Angels know the answer to that question. What's the answer to the question? Jesus is Christ the Lord. Not only do angels know the answer to that question, demons know the answer to that question. Keep going in Luke. Flip over to chapter 4. You got your Bible up? Look at chapter 4. Skip all the way down to verse 34. And notice we have a quote from a demon in the Bible. Ha! Wouldn't you expect the first word of the demon to be ha? That's what he says. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. What's the answer to the question? Who do you say that I am? He's the Holy One of God. Even the demons know that. Now let your eyes go to chapter 5. Go all the way down to verse 21, and we're introduced to these scribes and Pharisees that are learning who Jesus is. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God? Alone, Who is Jesus? Oh, he must be God because he forgives sins. Look at chapter 7. Keep going. Flip the page. Don't you love that, that sound in church? Did you hear that sound? That's a cool sound, right? Look over at chapter 7. Look at verse 20. The disciples of John come to the disciples of Jesus, and they've got questions about who Jesus is. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look to another? And so they knew the Old Testament was 
pointing us to who Jesus was. And they said, are you who those prophets were talking about? Skip down to chapter 7, verse 49. And some more Pharisees gather for a dinner party at Simon the Pharisee's house. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And then chapter 8, verse 25. This is after Jesus is in the boat and the storm comes up and Jesus calms the storm and the disciples were with him and he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that even commands the winds and the waters and they obey him? All along the way, Jesus, Luke, is introducing us to this Jesus who forgives sins, who is the Holy One, who is Christ the Lord, who even makes demons fear and tremble, who calms the winds and the waves. And then finally, the ultimate political figure, King Herod, in verse 9 of chapter 9. Let your eyes fall on that. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this? about whom I hear such things. And he sought to see him. Do you seek to see him this morning? Do you, do you know the answer to the question? Do you know who Jesus is? Understand this, accurately answering Jesus's question, who do you say I am, changes everything I believe about who I am. If you know who Jesus is, you give up the right to determine who you are. If you say Jesus is Christ the Lord, that means he gets the authority to define who I am. This is not an inconsequential statement. It changes everything about you. And once you are convinced of who Jesus is, you surrender to Jesus the right to determine who you are. And here's the great thing about true disciples. When true disciples answer Jesus' question, who do you say I am? Do you know what true disciples do? They turn and flip the question back to Jesus. Once true disciples accurately answer the question, who do you say that I am? They ask Jesus, Jesus, who do you say I am? You have the right to define everything about me. So do you know him? Do you know the answer to the question? Is he defining who you are? Is he changing who you are? I have never watched an entire episode of The Bachelorette. And I hope you haven't either, but I understand this season's episodes are a little controversial because The Bachelorette in this year's season identifies as a Christian. And she's been very bold about her faith and her allegiance to Jesus. But this has created a little bit of tension because she also has been very physically involved with some of the bachelor, bachelor, bachelor what do you call those guys? Bachelors, right? That are, that are suiting 
her and courting her. And so there are scenes that are like less than like appropriate. And so, but I'm a Christian and yet this is what, what we do. And, and so she does an interview and the interviewer asks her to resolve some of the tension. And this is what the bachelorette says. She says, regardless of anything I have done, I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. That's true. It's all washed. If the Lord doesn't judge me and it's all forgiven, then no man, no woman, nothing can judge me. Nobody's going to judge me. I won't stand for it. Now listen, that is, that is true. I am not the judge, the bachelorette. You are not the judge. There's only one judge. We'll all stand before the judge. But the bachelorette's identification as a Christian misses and ignores Jesus' Jesus's demands on her discipleship. And she's just the latest in high profile people that attach the name of Jesus to themselves. And yet then they become the spokesman for what genuine Christianity is. And my concern is there's a bunch of 13 year olds in my church that are thinking that's what you're supposed to be and do. And that's, and, and that's like the theology that we all lean into. Listen, we need to understand something. If the bachelorette knows who Jesus is, and apparently she says she does, I know who Jesus is, he's the one that, that forgives sin, and he's the one that washes me, and he's the one that removes my stain, and he's the one that removes my guilt. But if you know that, you can't live the same way you lived before you knew that. Jesus places demands on those who call themselves true disciples. And apparently, the bachelorette doesn't know what Jesus says are the marks of a true disciple. What she's saying is, though I know that Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sin and he spilled his blood to give me all of him, he doesn't expect anything from me. And he has no right to determine what I do with anything in my life, including my sexuality. And I can do whatever. That is a wrong understanding of what it means to be a true disciple. Christ will not allow you to claim him as a part of your life without being the center of your life. There are people here today who call yourselves Christians and yet after you spend a couple hours in church, there will be no discernible difference from the way you think, the way you talk, and the way you live from people that don't identify themselves as Christians. And you need to understand what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Your supposed relationship with Jesus, if it doesn't daily alter the way you live, you have no right to call yourself a Christian. You may, you may think you know who he is, but you don't really know. If you know who he is, it is going to have massive implications about who you think you are. And so we need to understand that giving Christ our lives means we give him everything. Let's talk about that.
Let's look at these three calls to genuine discipleship. First of all, there is the confession of a true disciple. We're here in Luke chapter 9. This is the pinnacle of the book of Luke. Everything from this point Everything from the beginning to this point has led to this pinnacle statement. Everything hinges in the book of Luke from this point forward. Everything hinges on this paragraph. Verse 18. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. Does that seem a little weird to you? Jesus was praying alone with the disciples. I think that just simply means Jesus was so consumed with the presence of his Father, he was having this great conversation with God, he was oblivious to the fact that there were disciples all around him. And then yet, after he communes with God, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples and says this. He asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? You know, the crowds have opinions about who Jesus is too, right? I mean, Jesus is the most polarizing figure in human history. Donald Trump is second, Jesus is first, okay? <laughs> Jesus polarized everybody. You drop Jesus' name in the middle of a crowd and people slide to one side or the other, right? As it should be. Jesus doesn't leave any room for middle ground, and yet that's the place that so many people want to be. And Jesus will not allow you to stay on the fence about who he is. And so the crowds have some opinions about who Jesus is. And he asked the disciples, who are the crowds saying I am? And they answer him in verse 19. They answered John the Baptist. That's one option. The others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So what the disciples say is, you know what, Jesus, you're polling really well in the crowds. They think you're a good man who speaks for God. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is a good man who speaks for God. And you got three options. We got a really good man, John the Baptist, and he spoke for God. And you got Elijah, he's like the famous, most powerful, flame throwing prophet of the Old Testament. And uh, they think you, you know, you're par with him because you got these power and miraculous abilities. And then you got other disciples that were really bold. You got Jeremiah and Isaiah and all kinds of people in the Old Testament. And, and you're polling really well. They have an elevated opinion of you. And so the crowds say, Jesus is a good man who speaks for God. But that is not the right answer to the question of who Jesus is. Do you understand that in order to be a disciple, you have to be willing to hold a minority opinion in answer to this question? In our culture, the crowds will say, Jesus is a good man, maybe even a good man who spoke for God. But, you know, he's got some antiquated beliefs about sexuality and marriage, and he's got some antiquated views about, you know, this exclusive, exclusivity about who's getting into heaven and, and, you know, whether or not there's a hell or not, that's kind of for debate. And, and so the crowds may say he's a good man, he just not, he's not a God man. And Jesus is pressing them further. As a matter of fact, he goes on and says in the next verse, then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Jesus is pressing them. You see, in order to be a disciple, you have to be willing to go against the crowd. And in our culture today, we have now moved past the point where affirming Jesus will get you the approval of the crowd. 
there was a day in our culture where it was just kind of like, it's a Christian country and you're supposed to be a Christian and go with the flow. Uh, we've, we've devolved beyond that point now. And yet now, in order to identify with Jesus as a true disciple and embrace him as everything he says he is, is not gonna get you the preferred job promotion. It's not gonna make you captain of the team. As a matter of fact, you're gonna start paying a price. You're gonna be opposed, you're gonna be marginalized, you're gonna be rejected, you could be fired, you could be imprisoned, and it could get even worse. You could be beheaded. At some point in the future, that may be coming. You say, this is so depressing. I didn't want to hear this when I come to, no, 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 this is good news. This is good news for the church. You know why? It means that all the phony, baloney, nominal Christians, and when I say nominal Christian, I mean in name only, that means that they will stop identifying with Jesus. As soon as they have to pay a price, as soon as there's opposition, as soon as there's a cost, they will go away. They will sleep in on Sunday mornings and they will stop deluding the congregation of the disciples of Jesus that have come to worship him. Now, obviously, we're, this is a public worship service. We want as many non-believers and outsiders to come in here so we can tell them the gospel so they can become true believers of Jesus. But those that sit in the middle that think they are disciples and yet do not let Jesus have the center of their lives and change everything about them, they will stop coming, at least here. And you know what our congregation will be? Our congregation may be fewer, but it will be truer. Because non-believing Christians, understand that word? Nominal Christians, unbelievers who identify as Christians, they'll get smoked out when there's pressure and opposition and persecution, when it's no longer politically expedient to name the name of Christ. That is the call of true discipleship, to confess something different than the crowd believes about Jesus. I was uh, talking with, uh, by the way, what's the question here? What's the answer to the question? We need to answer the question. There is an answer to the question. Peter, the disciple, answers the question. Here's the answer to the question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, I say, you are the Christ of God. Do you know how much power there is packed in those four little words? Peter didn't say you're a Christ. He said you're the Christ. The exclusive representative sent from God by God as God to reconcile us to God. You say, I'm confused. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to be a little confused about the Trinity. But it also means that we rest in the truth that there is a representative sent from God, by God, as God, to reconcile us to God. The Christ, the, the word Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. Does everybody understand that? It's not Jesus' last name, all right? It's a title. It actually might better go in front. The same way we would say President Trump or President Obama, we would say Christ Jesus. It's a title. And what it means is Messiah it means rescuer. And so God has sent the rescuing Christ to redeem and save sinners, very specific purpose, sinners from sin. Now, Peter didn't understand all the implications of what he was saying. We're going to find out that in just a minute. But everybody in human history has looked 
for a Christ, even atheists. You say, well, what do you mean? People are looking for something or someone to rescue them. Rescue them from their anger, their temper, their money problems, their health crisis, their relational issues in marriage. And, and everybody here today is looking for a Christ. The problem is, is we look, too sha- we, we look too shallow. We think our deepest problems are our money issues or our anger issues or our relational issues. And our issues are so much deeper than that. Most people never look for a Christ at the deepest level of their need. And what Peter was saying is, we need somebody to rescue us. But probably in Peter's mind, in the disciples' mind, in the crowd's mind, they were thinking their deepest problem was, we're the people of God, and yet we're under Roman oppression. We need a political Christ. We, we need somebody to obliterate Herod. We need, we need an opposing army to liberate us, our country. And that's what, we, that's what we really need. And Jesus didn't come to be a political savior. He came for a very specific purpose, to rescue sinners from their worst enemy, not the Roman government, from their sin. And because of their sin, their worst enemy was themselves. And because their selves had sinned, their actual worst enemy at their deepest level was who? God. They had made themselves enemies of God. And they needed a Christ to rescue them from God. They were standing under the judgment of God. And if you have not yet received Christ, you are standing under the judgment of God. The question is, do you know who can save you from the judgment of God? The answer is Christ. But most people never look for a Christ to save themselves from the judgment of God because they don't think that's their problem. They think their problem is their low bank account or the fact they don't have a boyfriend. Most people don't look for Christ because they never look at their sin. And Peter was identifying Jesus was the one, the only one sent by God to rescue them from the judgment of God. That's the confession of a true disciple. Have you, have you connected those dots? Have you publicly confessed, I am in need of a rescue from the judgment of God because of my sin, and I'm confessing Christ as the only one who can rescue me from my sin Hallelujah. and the judgment of God. Have you made that confession? It's a public confession, and it goes so much deeper than saying, now I can do whatever I want to. The confession of a true disciple and then the price of a true disciple. Look at verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to go out and tell everyone. Is that what your Bible says? Don't let me get away with heresy up here, folks. I, did, did you read that in your Bible? Or does your Bible say something different than my Bible? Says? Oh, he's playing a trick. He's just trying to get me to pay attention to the sermon, isn't he? Yes, he is. So what does verse, I mean, what would you expect verse 21 to say? Peter just said, you're the Christ. You'd expect Jesus to say, well, go tell everybody, would you please? That's not what he says. He says completely the opposite. He strictly charged them, verse 21, and commanded them to tell this to no one. You know why? There's nothing more dangerous than a disciple who knows Jesus in his head and it hasn't yet penetrated to his heart. 
That's a dangerous Christian right there. And there were things about Jesus that Peter had yet to learn. As a matter of fact, Jesus wanted him to understand, Peter, you may know who I am, but you have not yet learned what I came to do. So let me tell you what I came to do. Verse 22, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Does that sound different than the first nine chapters of Luke? It's absolutely different. And be rejected by the elders. Wait a minute, I thought he just had a crowd of 20,000 people when he fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. And scribes, and he must be killed. Killed? What? You've got all this power over demons and authority over winds and waves. You rescue us from being killed when, when we were in the, the Sea of Galilee. And start, what do you mean you've got to be killed? And on the third day, be raised. You understand? Peter did not yet have an accurate view of the price that Jesus would pay to make someone a true disciple. It was going to cost him suffering and rejection and death on a cross. And so he says, Peter, before you go tell everybody this, you need to have an understanding that we aren't getting this mission done without the cross. It's the price tag for sin. And if you're going to follow me as a disciple, you need to understand. You've been following me to this point for two and a half years. The events that occur up to this point in chapter 9 in Luke took two and a half years. From this point on, the next six months will be a journey to the cross. This statement by Jesus, this conversation that he was having with the disciples, it took place in the farthest northern region in Israel in a place called Caesarea Philippi. You can still go there today. It's a beautiful place. But every step Jesus took from that point forward led him to Jerusalem, to suffering, to rejection, to the cross, to the tomb before he was raised. Now, do you still want to follow me? Because it's not going to be an easy journey. Up until this point, you thought I came to make your life easier. I mean, I could feed 5,000. I could peel people from, the, from, from diseases. I could cast out demons. I made, I made your life pretty easy, didn't I? Well, it's going to get harder now. Because the price of a true disciple is death on a cross. And Jesus was demonstrating his willingness to come and not conquer, but to suffer. Not kill his enemies, but die for his enemies. Not to be applauded, but to be rejected. Not to be raised in popularity, but be raised from the dead. And Jesus is saying... Don't be surprised, fellas. We're going to the cross. It has a design. It has a purpose. It's, it's, not a, it's not a surprise. It's exactly the reason I came. And you guys need to be ready for it. That's what he's saying. Is the price of becoming a true disciple was paid by Jesus on a cross as he atoned for our sin. And so the crowds are going to decrease. His popularity is going to diminish. Life is going to get harder and the cost will be greater for becoming a true disciple. And yet, it's the very worth and value that Jesus places on people like you and me that gives us the motivation to continue to follow him. He did all of that for me. He, he bled out for me. Well, yeah, Jesus, what do, you, what do you want from me? You're going to die for me? A true disciple says, I will live for you. 
That's the definition of a true disciple. Here's the last thing. The proof of a true disciple. Notice verse 23. And he said to all. You see the word all in verse 23? Please underline that. If anyone. Do you see the word anyone in verse 23? Please underline that. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. All true disciples are characterized by denying themselves, taking up their cross daily, and following Jesus. If you are not denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus, you are not a disciple. You say, well, wait, 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 come on. I mean, like, disciples are like these really sold-out, radical Christians. I'm just an everyday, ordinary, remedial Christian, and I got issues. There are not two kinds of Christians. There are disciples, and there are people who are not. And if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, the characteristics of your life will be daily denying yourself, daily taking up your cross, and following Jesus. Notice verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? There's interesting paradoxes in Jesus pressing this further into Peter. Remember, he's talking to people that he's about to invite to come and suffer with him. And he's, he's making them count the cost. What's the proof of a true disciple? He tells us, it all has to do what you do with your life. Now, I want you to look. Do you see in verse 24 the word life? Whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The word life there, what, what does that mean? In order to be a disciple, I have to... I have to die, I lose my life. When, how do I save my life if I lose it? What is he talking about? The key is in understanding the Greek word behind the word life there. There's two, two Greek words for life. One is bios, but you get the word biology from it, right? It means life. It means physical life. Another word is psyche. We get our word psychology from it. It means soul or self. Guess which word he uses here? not bios, not physical life. He's talking about your true self, your inner self. What is he saying? In order to be his disciple, you have to set, you, you, you can't be committed to saving yourself, protecting yourself. You have to be willing to forfeit yourself, to lose yourself, to surrender yourself to Jesus. And if all you are intent upon is guarding your rights and guarding yourself, then Jesus is saying you're going to lose yourself and you're going to lose eternal life. 
And so the test of true discipleship is what you do with your true self. And what Jesus is saying is, he demands my daily self-denial. You know, the default condition of the human heart is self-gratification. What I eat, what I feel, I just just want as much as I can get. The default setting of my life is self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-esteem. That's why you can go to Barnes and Noble and there's a whole rack of self-help books. Even in the church, we can confuse discipleship with self-improvement. There's a class on how to manage your money. Oh, oh, if I, if, I, if I learn to manage my money, it will help myself. Oh, here's a class on marriage and parenting. Well, if we could have a little peace and calm around here, it would help myself. Listen, discipleship is not about helping yourself. Discipleship is about denying yourself. Denying your rights to self-gratification and self-fulfillment and self-advancement and even self-help. So when Jesus calls me to daily self-denial, he is calling me to surrender my rights. And then Jesus demands my daily dying to self. It's the term that he used, take up your cross daily. Now remember, This is six months before Jesus would take up his cross. He's calling his disciples to take up their cross. They would be very familiar with Roman crucifixion, where they would hang a guilty criminal on a cross, nails through the hands, nails through the feet, until he would suffocate himself because he couldn't pull himself up any longer to breathe. And Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? Crucify yourself. Not once. Daily. Still want to be my disciple? You still think you know who Jesus is? Are you willing to be crucified daily to endure torture and pain and mistreatment and opposition and rejection in order to follow Jesus? What is he saying? He's saying that all of us have these appetites that in ourselves that are unhealthy to us spiritually. And because Jesus wants us to have eternal life and spiritual life, we have to deny immediate gratification for delayed glorification. That's what he wants for you. That's what he's offering to you. But it only comes to those who are willing to die to self. Interestingly here, who is he telling to deny self? Think about it, just on an individual basis. He's telling myself to deny myself. He's telling my living self to die to myself. He, apparently there's two selves. There's one that dies and one that crucifies. And once I crucify the old self, now there's a new self, there's a new life that follows Jesus in abandon. It's not just becoming a corpse, it's becoming fully alive with the life of Christ to follow him, to pursue him, to love him, to worship him, to serve him. And so Jesus demands my daily dying to self, but listen, it doesn't stop there. 
Jesus determines my daily direction. It's not some passive death. It is an abundant, energetic, intentional life to move in the direction Jesus is moving. It's to go where Jesus is going. It's to think like Jesus is thinking. It's to be on mission with him. And so how do you do this? Notice the word daily. We do this every day. We get up every day. We say, Jesus, I'm here for service. I just want you to know before I get myself into all kinds of trouble, I die to myself. My ambitions, my agenda, it is on the altar, it's on the cross, it's crucified. And so where do you want to go today? I will follow you. Now, I've got a tendency to follow other things and other people and other voices. I'm dead to those voices. I'm here to follow you. And we do that daily. By the way, where would you hear Jesus' voice telling you where he's going today? Right here. That's why the first thing you should do every morning before you check your Facebook and your Twitter account and your Instagram feed is to get your face in the book so you can know where Jesus is going, not where all your friends went last night. What do they call those people on uh, Instagram? Oh, followers. Hmm. Understand this. Discipleship begins at the point we surrender to fully and finally follow Jesus. This has to happen for every true disciple. There is a point in your life that you make the decision once for all who you're following. And you say, I'm going with Jesus. I don't care where the crowd goes. I don't care what the crowd thinks of me. I'm not going to live in the fear of man. I'm going to live in the fear of God. There's a point at which this happens. For some of you, it happened when you were seven years old in vacation Bible school. Praise God. For some of you, it happened at a youth camp. Praise God. Some of you, it happened in college. For some of you, it's going to happen this morning. Praise God. It needs to happen for you, some of you, this morning. But there is a point at which you decide who you're following and you become a true disciple of Jesus. Discipleship begins at a point we surrender to fully and finally follow Jesus. But listen, it doesn't stop there. Discipleship is not just a point. It is a journey that continues with daily decisions to follow Jesus into new areas of surrender. You may wake up one morning and Jesus put his finger on an area of your life he wants you to surrender today. If you say no to that, that's the moment at which your discipleship stops. And you can't go any further with Jesus. And so every day is a daily decision to take up my cross, deny myself, and follow Jesus. There's one more verse here. Look at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, notice not just Jesus, but his authoritative teaching on every subject. Are you ashamed of anything Jesus taught? Do you know the reason why people don't follow Jesus? It's not out of fear. It's out of shame. They're ashamed of the teaching of Jesus. They're ashamed of the words of Jesus. They're ashamed of the life of Jesus, which served and humbled himself and bled out on a cross in apparent defeat. Who wants to be associated with that? But notice, 
He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He lets them have a preview of what's coming. There's glory coming, but it's on the other side of the cross. There, no cross, no glory. And the first time Jesus came, it was a, a life that led to the cross. The second time he comes, it's a life that leads to glory. And you're not getting the glory if you don't go to the cross. As Jesus hung there on that cross, if you were to ask him, Jesus, why are you dying for me? He would answer you and say, because I am not ashamed of you. No matter how ashamed you are of yourself, you've never done anything that shames Jesus. He is willing to die for you because he is not ashamed of you. If you ask a true disciple, why are you living for Jesus? The answer would be, because I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Do you boldly, publicly confess him? Do you, do you live for him knowing that he died for you? Or do you have a cavalier attitude that says, I can do whatever I want to because Jesus died for me and he makes no demands and no claims on my life. That is not a true disciple. We're gonna receive communion here at the end of this service and this is one of the most visible ways for us to acknowledge that we are a follower of Jesus. The ushers are coming and they're gonna distribute these elements right now and as they distribute them, let me just say, this is only for true disciples of Jesus. If you're not yet a, a fully and finally, if you've not fully and finally come to the point of making the decision to follow Jesus, just let this, this tray pass. But for most of us, if you'll take that cup, you'll notice both elements are in the cup. Just hold it there. We're going to come back and receive these in just a moment. But I want us to take a time. The scripture says that this is a time to examine ourselves. This is a time to surrender afresh and anew, to contemplate the price that was paid for our sin so that we can get to the place we have a heart abandoned to the Lord. Nick's going to lead us in this song. And let this just be a reflection, a time of communion with the Lord to examine, am I really fully and finally following Jesus as a true disciple?